Hey guys, Pastor David here. Uh, welcome to Victory Church. We're excited that you have uh, found us, that you're joining us today. We're a community of authentic, spirit-led Christ followers transformed to walk in victory. That is our vision here at Victory Church, and that is what we're praying will become a reality for us as a church here at Victory. So I'm glad that you guys found us. I'm glad that you're joining us today, and we're excited about kicking off this sermon here in just a moment. I am because of who you are, and that's amazing. I love that, man. Finding our identity in Christ, not in the world. That's just, I love that. It's a powerful, powerful song. It's so true. Um, so as we kick this off, I got a quick question. Any, any perfect people in the room? Perfect people, you can raise your hand. Go ahead and raise them. Nice and high, perfect people in the room. Nobody. There's, there's no perfect people. Okay, I think it's safe to say there are no perfect people. Um, I have no clue why I have my hand raised. I need to like bury it in the and the um, stage here, man, my wife will tell you first off that, that I am not perfect at all. So you can rest assured, you can kind of rest easy, breathe in, it's okay, relax a little bit, take the mask off, this is a safe place. The person to your left, to your right, they have issues and struggles just like you have issues and struggles. So this is a safe place, breathe easy. I wanted to ask that question to make sure that I'm talking to the right group of people before I say what I'm about to say next, which is the fact that every single one of us have a certain struggle. There's a lot of struggles that we all have, but there's a certain struggle that every single one of us have. We're we're not immune to this. None of us are. And no, this isn't, we talked about everyone's struggle a few weeks ago. That was the topic of the sermon, which was our our sin addiction that we all have. We all have that, but this is something a little bit more specific. This is a certain issue, a struggle that we all have. Nobody is immune to this, and this issue, this struggle, is called fear. Every one of us struggle with fear in different ways. Ways. It kind of rears its head in different ways. Sometimes people can have the fear of rejection. Sometimes people can have the fear of failure, fear of the future, fear of what people might think of them, or fear of pain, not just physical, but emotional pain. As much as we, want to, um, we don't want to admit it to ourselves or to the world around us, every single one of us struggles with fear. We are fearful, fear-filled people, as much as we hate to admit this to ourselves. And really, if we kind of dive into this a little bit deeper, when you trace a lot of the issues and the struggles in your life back, kind of start tracing them back, almost like peeling back the layers of an onion. A lot of those issues and struggles, as you start peeling them back, the, one of the root key issues that they all kind of trace back to is fear. Oftentimes, so many of those things that we struggle with trace back to fear. I would even take this one step further. I would say that a couple, two of the probably biggest root issues and struggles that we all face, if we were to just trace back the layers of the the, the superficial things that we struggle with that are most prevalent to us and people around us, you trace those back, the two biggest things are probably fear and pride. Fear and pride. So why are we talking about this? Why is this important for us to kind of talk about and to understand? It's because when we understand that, then we can start to understand how much control and power fear can have over our life when we, get this, when we allow it to. When we allow it to. Fear will lie to us. It'll tell us a lot of different things. Like, for example, you're never going to be safe. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter who you're with, not even with God, you are not safe no matter what happens. Another lie that it'll tell us is you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to amount to enough. You better keep on trying. You're not there yet. You're never going to get there. Another lie will tell us is, hey, you're, you're, you're going to be crippled by this, this situation. You're never going to get out of this. You're never going to get out of this struggle, this situation, circumstance, past this relationship, this person. It's just going to eat you alive. You're going to be overwhelmed, consumed by this. You're never going to get out of it. Those are just some of the lies that fear tries to tell us. Just some of them. One of the things that fear loves to do 
more than anything else is it loves to create giants in our life. Anything and anyone that you allow it to, fear will make a giant out of it. It is a giant generator when we give into it. But what we have to understand is we've been given this incredible book by God himself who maps out, he shows us specifically how we can start to live our life from a posture of courage and victory rather than from a posture of fear and defeat. But the secret is, the key to that is putting on God's perspective, starting to see our life, the world around us, our giants from a God's eye view. And as we start to see from God's perspective the giants in our life, what we find out is with God's perspective, we can rise above any giants we face. That's our big idea today. With God's perspective, we can rise above any giants that we face. But here's the thing. We can't do it alone. You cannot do this alone. You cannot do this in your own power. Okay? The key to starting to see your life, the world around you, and the giants that you face from God's perspective, from a God's eye view, is learning to lean into the one that has the power to conquer those giants. And as we start to lean into him, as we start to put on God's perspective of our life, our world around us, and our giants, what we start to learn more and more is that our giants in life have actually already been conquered. They've already been conquered. But we can only start to see this when we start to see things through God's perspective. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this family that you have put together. We are only here because of you, because of your glory. You're so worthy to be praised, and we just thank you so much for what you've done for us. God, I pray that you just illuminate your truth through this text that we're about to dive into. That this doesn't just become another familiar story that we've heard before, that you just illuminate it in our lives, in our thoughts, in our hearts, in ways that it hasn't been illuminated before. That you use this, this time, to show us things in our life that we need to work on, things in our life that have been keeping us from you, chain shackles that we've been holding on to, but you want to set us free. You've already set us free. God, I pray that you just illuminate the giants in our life, that you've already been victorious over. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you flood this, this place to feel you tangibly in this place. Convict us, draw us closer to you. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to be diving into one of the most well-known stories in the entire Bible. I mean, tons of people know this. Not just Christians, but secular uh, people, non-Christians know this story. Very, very familiar story. It's a story about a young boy named David and a giant named Goliath. Or at least that's kind of the superficial um, vision view of this story. As we dive into the story today, what we're going to find out is there's so much more to this story than what meets the eye. There's so much more to this story than just a giant and a boy named David. And, and on top of that, more than that, there are several truths that God has for us, illuminates um, in this text um, for us. And as, if, if we're willing to look at them and see them, if we're willing to kind of grab hold of them and apply them to our life, then what we're going to find is they will help us to be able to see our life and the world around us from a completely different vantage point, completely different. Because these truths are the key to unlocking the secret to living our life out of a perspective of courage and victory rather than a perspective of fear and defeat. Um, this story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and break it open. Uh, turn to 1 Samuel 17. We'll be kind of diving into that chapter uh, skipping around a little bit. If you don't have your Bible, we'll have it up on the screen. But 
Before we dive into the text, though, I want to kind of break down a little bit of the backstory so we understand the context, what's going on here. We can kind of see the bigger picture that's being painted through this story. See, this story happened uh, about 3,000 years ago. That's when this, took, this event took place, a little over 3,000 years ago, actually, in the nation of Judah at, at this valley called Soko. And this valley is about uh, roughly a mile long. There's two mountains that kind of face each other. They face um, kind of the middle of this area. On one mountainside, you've got, at the top of it, you've got the Philistine army that's camped out. On the other mountain, you've got the Israelite um, army that's camped out. And they can actually see each other really well. There's good visibility here. It's not, they're not that far away from each other. They can see each other really well. So as the Israelites are camped out um, in this spot, they can look over. They can see the entire Philistine army just staring back at them. And they can also see, as we'll get to later, as we'll talk about later, this giant named Goliath as he's coming down and taunting them. They've got a really good visual of this guy. They see this isn't just any normal guy. This is a huge, just a giant of a man, and they can see this really well. And see, from the world's perspective, a little bit about the Philistines and the Israelites. From the world's perspective, the Philistines are actually much stronger than the Israelites for a couple of reasons. From the world's perspective, much stronger. For one, the, um, the Philistines were actually one of the first civilizations to start working with iron and bronze. And, and when you look back at the text, we're not going to dive into the beginning of this story, 1 Samuel 17. But if you look at it, there's a lot of references to um, Goliath's armor. And that's kind of why, almost like he was bragging about it, but then also the writer of it is, is really signifying the, the, just kind of the power that this dude had and this nation had, the Philistines too, and the strength that they had. It's kind of bragging about their armor. Okay? Again, one of the first civilizations to work with, to use bronze and iron, and they use this with their weapons. Okay? That's one of the reasons. The other reason that from the world's perspective, um, the Philistines are actually a lot stronger than the Israelites is because the Philistines tr- controlled Three major cities, three major cities that were along, at that time, um, the most popular trade route in the entire world, the entire world. So two big reasons why, from the world's perspective, on paper, if you were to look at it, you were to compare these two nations, Israel and the Philistines, you would think, wait, man, it's only a matter of time before these Philistines take over the Israelites, right? On paper, from the world's perspective, these guys are a lot stronger than the Israelites. That's the world's perspective. But God's perspective, as we find a lot of times in life, is a lot different. God's perspective is a little bit different than this. He doesn't work by our agendas and our paperwork and the world's perspective. His perspective is different. So here's why. The Philistines are living in the, in, in the land of Canaan. Okay? In other words, the promised land. So when you go back in time, um, the Canaan, the promised land, as the Israelites stepped into the promised land, what is one of the things that God commanded them to do when they first got to the promised land? What's one of the things that he commanded them to do with all these other people groups, these other civilizations, these nations that were there? Well, yeah, and told them to drive them out, right? Drive them out. So all these things that God had done time and time again, he'd proven himself to them. He, get, you know, he takes them there. He says, look, this is your land, no one else's. This isn't anybody else's. I don't have this land for anyone else except for you. Drive them out. That was a command. This wasn't like an option. He was saying, hey, drive them out. I want you to drive them out. And God had already promised them that they are his nation. They're his nation set apart. He was going to take care of them. He had already proven time and time again that he was going to provide for them. So in other words, when he's telling them, commanding them, hey, drive all these people out of this land. This is for you. He's also saying, I'm going to be there with you. I'm actually going to be the one driving them out. What I want you to do is take a little step of faith, and I'm going to do the rest. 
drive them out. And when you go back, you read the stories of Joshua um, and, and the Israelites when they first went into that land. Man, time and time again, victory after victory after victory. They, I mean, unbelievable victory that these guys had. They drove tons of people out of that land, completely victorious. Not because of them, because of God. This was his promise. But they didn't drive all of them out. They didn't drive all of them out. There were some that stayed there. And because of that, they're continuing to have to fight these battles with these guys. Like, for example, the Philistines. The Philistines are like their, 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 their rivals, their nemesis, right? They keep on popping up. It's like this giant in your life that just keeps on popping up. No matter what you do, you take it down, it comes back up. Take it down, it comes back up. Because they never fully drove them out. And so here they are again in this situation. They're having to face the Philistines all over again. Why? Because ultimately what we find, the reason that they are having to face the Philistines in this moment, two reasons. They didn't fully trust God. Because if they had fully trust God, then they would have driven them out of that land. Second, they didn't obey. They didn't trust, they didn't obey. Now, as we read this text, it's really easy for us to kind of dive into that and think, man, why in the world would these crazy guys, why would the Israelites not trust and obey God after everything that he's done? He's proven himself time and time again. All the victories that they had with Joshua, just drive them out, man. Drive them out, because one of the promises that he had, God had for them, is so that they could have peace in the land. They would have peace. That's what God told them. Why didn't they obey? But here's the thing. It's easy for us to do as we're reading this text from kind of like this vantage point. But what we really need to do as we read this text is we need to step back. We need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, man, how often do we, do I do the same thing in my life? How often do I, rather than trusting and obeying God, end up having to face the same giant's in my life, time and time and time again, rather than trusting in his promises and obeying him. What's so crazy about this story that's so often missed, guys, is the fact that these guys, the Israelites, were never intended by God to have to fight this fight. They were never intended to have to do this. They wouldn't have had to do this. They wouldn't have had to go up against the Philistines in this scene, in this time, this moment of history. They would have never had to go up against the Goliath if they had simply obeyed God. This is their own self-made giant because they didn't obey him. They didn't trust him. The thing is, though, as we read the Bible time and time again, time and time again, God continues bailing us out of those man-made giants, not only in the Bible but in our own life we can see it, bailing us out from our own self-made giants. Again, in this situation, this was not God's intent. It was their own self-made giant. But he does this when two things exist. The first thing is when there's humility. When we humbly, we humble ourselves before God. We humbly submit to him. And then we seek after his will. Humbly submit to him and seek after his will. And when it comes to David, who's a young boy at this time in history, but later on he's going to become the greatest king that the nation of Israel ever had. When you look at his life, you kind of step back, look at the grand picture of his life. His life represents those, those two things. That's why God called him a man after his own heart. He humbly submitted to God. He honestly sought after his will. David was not a perfect man at all. You don't have to read the Bible very long to, to notice that. This dude had some issues. Okay? We all do. We all struggle with sins. Rome, Romans 3.23, man. All of us struggle with sin. The thing is, when you honestly look at his life, it honestly represented humble submission to God 
and chasing after his will. So at this time in the story, David's brothers are in the, in, are in the army. They're in the Israelite army, okay? So they're those guys that are facing the, the Philistines. They see him on that other ridge over there, uh, and they also see this, this giant Goliath coming out and mocking them day after day, right? So they're there. Where's David at? David's back home with his daddy, right? David's back home with his daddy, so he's tending the sheep. He's helping his dad out, and then one day his dad, Jesse, goes up to him and says, David, Hey, I got some food. I want you to take this food over to your brothers and we'll ask them to check on them, ask them how they're doing, check on how things are going, and then report back to me because I want to know how they're doing. I want to know how my boys, how my nation is doing. So go ahead and do this, right? Go on, boy. You know, that's what he does. He's just, all right, you go ahead. So David goes, and he goes out, takes this food. He gets there. He sees the nation of Israel just fighting their hearts out, you know, in complete abandonment, faith, you know, that God is going to give them victory, right? That's how the story goes. Complete opposite. These guys were chickens. They were cowards, man. They were paralyzed in fear. Completely stonewalled, just paralyzed in fear. Nobody was doing anything, anything at all. And see, what was happening was the Philistines had this guy named Goliath. He was going out there. He was taunting them day after day after day. What's so crazy about this is these guys, the Israelites, they weren't completely paralyzed in fear because of the, the nation or the army of the Philistines. That's not why they were paralyzed, because of his army. They were paralyzed because of one guy. One guy. He was a giant of a man, but it was one dude that the entire nation of Israel, the entire army of Israel, was paralyzed in fear by. This guy was going out day after day after day, taunting them, mocking them, making fun of them, mocking God, more importantly. Just mocking God. The reason that he was doing this, the reason that Goliath was doing this, is because this was actually something that would happen oftentimes with different armies, that they would get together. Um, one of the reasons that they would do this, they would come together, um, and, and they, one, one army um, would send out their best warrior, the other army would send out their best warrior, and they would fight to the death, and whoever won that battle meant their nation also won, right? They're, they're, uh, they won that war, they won that battle. If their guy, their warrior, ended up winning. And what this would do is this would save a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of hassle, a lot of bloodshed. Time to bloodshed because only one person would die. In an entire battle, only one person would die, maybe even an entire war. So that's one of the reasons. One of the other reasons is because of strategic, uh, military-type tactical reasons. And in this situation, this is kind of more of a military, tactical, strategic type of reason. Because, again, you remember where they're at, the terrain, okay, what's going on. One um, army is on one kind of hill, mountainside. The other army is on one, another hill, mountainside. So what they don't want to do is send their whole army down into this area, not that crazy big, and then have to fight their way up a hill. Who in the world wants to have to do that? Then you give them the tactical advantage. All they got to do is wait for you to come down or shoot their arrows down into that valley. Nobody's going to do that. They're like, no, that's crazy. So neither side is wanting to go down and face each other. They're kind of at a deadlock. So that's when they're like, okay, we're going to initiate this thing where we send a guy, you send a guy. The Philistines send Goliath. They're like, man, we got this in the back. This is, this is already won. Nobody's going to take this down. Nobody's been able to take this guy down. Nobody's going to stop him. So that's who they send out. And the Philistines have sent no one. Not one person has gone out. And so David gets there. He sees this guy, Goliath, going out there, and he's taunting them, making fun of them. David starts asking these questions. He's baffled by this. He's like, what in the world is going on? Who, who is this dude 
that's going out, that's coming out here and mocking them. And he starts hearing these answers, who this guy is. He starts, as he asks, he's, he's asking these questions, he also starts to find out that this guy has been out there every morning and every evening doing the same thing. Forget this, 40 days. 40 days this dude was doing this. Every morning, every evening. One man going out there making fun of these guys, taunting them, mocking God to their face and saying, will no one come out, one person, anybody, you can pick whoever you want, I will take them on right here, right now, 40 days, day and night. And that one person would even consider it. And David just keeps on asking these questions, like he's baffled by this, what is going on? As he's asking the questions, one of the other things he finds out is that Saul, the king of Israel at that time, had even given whoever would go out there if they beat Goliath, this giant, there was a lot of incentives for this. For one, obviously, you'd be the hero of the nation at that point in time. Everybody would know your name because this is huge, right? The other thing is Saul, the king of Israel, was actually willing to give his daughter's hand in marriage to the guy that went out and fought this battle. On top of that, the guy that went out there and fought that battle, if you defeated Goliath, that dude's dad would be exempt from paying taxes, get this, for the rest of his life, ever. I mean, there were tons of incentives. This is like hitting the jackpot, dude. You are married to the king's daggum daughter. Think about that. I mean, everything that comes along with that, this is huge. But here's the thing. Still, nobody, not one person would even think about going out there. Why? Because they're thinking, dude, that's, that's awesome. That's a huge jackpot. But here's the thing. I'm never going to be able to enjoy it because I'm going to be dead. I'll be dead. I, I ain't going to do that. You're crazy, you know? And then not only would I be dead, but then I would also be labeled the guy that ended up losing this battle for us. There ain't no way. That is a suicide mission. I am not doing that. The entire Israelite army. If it keeps on asking these questions, the word spread that this random dude's asking all these questions, it spreads all the way back to the king, back to Saul. And then David standing before Saul, because Saul summons him, he's probably wondering, Dude, who is this guy? Maybe we finally got somebody that's willing to, to come out and fight this guy. Finally, after 40 days. So he summons him. David comes up to Saul. He's standing before him. That's where we're at here. Check out the text. 1 Samuel 17, verses 32 through 33. It's up on the screen if you don't have your Bible. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Talking about Goliath. Your servant, talking about himself, um, it's a humble way of talking about himself, will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was young. So pause right there. Right off the bat, right off the bat, which two verses, we see David's incredible giant faith in this situation. Again, 40 days, day, morning, and evening, nobody would go out. Nobody would even consider the entire army wouldn't consider you got some brave dudes in this entire army man you got some brave people warriors in there no one would even consider going out and fighting this guy after 40 days every morning and every evening david takes one look at this guy don't miss this one look and he's like i'll go fight him one look at him and he's already telling saul i will go and i will fight him just this giant faith of this guy and what's crazy here is David isn't even old enough to be in the army yet. That's why he's not in the army and his brothers are. He's back at daddy's house. Technically speaking, David should be on his way back to his daddy's house reporting the news that his dad asked for. That's where David should be. But instead, this kid that is roughly, give or take, 15 years old, that's it, 15 or so, 
He's standing before the king of Israel saying, I will go fight this giant, the most elite warrior that the Philistines have, the most elite warrior probably at that time in the world. I'll go fight him. After nobody else would even consider this the crazy faith that this guy had. And then you've got Goliath. So here's on one side, you've got this runt kid, 15 years old roughly, standing on this corner. Then the other corner, you've got Goliath. This dude was a monster of a man. He was huge. I mean, like, you can't just say he was a big guy. The, the Bible references big guys, okay? He says, you know, they were tall or whatever. For example, Saul, the king of Israel this time, day and age, he was actually a head and sh- about a head, um, head and shoulders um, above um, any other man, the, the average man in that day and age. The Bible actually tells us that, okay? So the Bible told us that this was a really tall dude. He wasn't a really tall dude. He was a giant of a man. He was huge. This guy was so big that Shaquille O'Neal, everybody knows Shaquille O'Neal is in here, right? If you don't, you need to Google him, okay? Shaquille O'Neal used to play, play with a lot of people, play with the Lakers, for example. Anyway, Shaquille O'Neal, monster of a man. He, he's just a great basketball player, great forward. He's known for being this, this big, tall dude, right? Just unstoppable force. Well, Shaquille O'Neal would have been dwarfed by this guy. He would have been dwarfed by him. Goliath, get this, was nine feet, nine inches tall. A basketball goal is 10 feet tall, man. It's only three inches off, if my math's correct, right? Three inches. That's what? Are you kidding me? Here's to put it into perspective. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal, Shaq, as he's known, Shaq was, is uh, seven feet, one inch tall. Seven feet, one inch tall. This dude, Goliath, is over two and a half feet taller than Shaquille O'Neal is. This dude is huge. He ain't just tall. Man, he is a giant of a man. And not just that. He's not just a really, really insanely tall giant of a man. He's not just this really tall giant that's kind of skinny. He's massive. This dude is crazy strong, okay? He's not just a skinny guy. He's extremely strong, okay? Um, so his, just to give you a little picture of this, his armor alone weighed 125 pounds. Just the armor. It's not including his weapons, his shield, any kind of satchel or pouch that he wears. This would be the equivalent of guys in the military, for those of you that have been in the military, or we've all seen movies and pictures of this, wearing your um, you know, flak jacket and the sappy plates, just that, 125 pounds. That's the equivalent of this. Not including the javelin that he had, the sword that he had, his spear, just the tip of the spear, not the whole spear. The tip of it alone weighed 15 pounds. How in the world would you throw that thing? That's crazy. That's like throwing a daggum kettlebell. You know, and those things are supposed to be launched a far, a long distance. This dude was massive. He was crazy strong. Like, when I start thinking about Goliath, I start thinking about uh, Dwayne Johnson, you know, a.k.a. The Rock. He used to be a wrestler. Now he's a, uh, uh, you know, movie star or whatever, right? So those of you guys that probably, most everybody, I think, knows who I'm talking about here. If you don't, Dwayne Johnson is massive. This guy is a monster. His bicep is as big as my torso. It's crazy. Unflexed. It's, it's ridiculous. He is huge. And he's like six foot six. This dude is a monster of a man. But here's the thing. It's like Dwayne Johnson times over three feet. They're over three feet taller. That's how big this dude is. It is crazy how big this guy is. He's a monster of a man. And here's the thing. 
the difference between him and Dwayne Johnson is Dwayne Johnson pretends. He acts like he's this killing machine on movies. This guy, Goliath, is literally a killing machine, unstoppable, undefeated, undisputed. Nobody can take this down. Nobody can do anything with this guy, and he knows it. The Philistines know it. The Israelites know it. So with this picture, we can kind of start to understand why nobody wanted to go up these insanely brave guys. Don't think that there weren't any really, really brave guys in the Israelite army. You had extremely brave guys take down several men on their own, but nobody, none of them, would even consider taking on Goliath. This dude is massive, and he is a warrior. He can fight like crazy until David comes along. This roughly five feet tall, average height roughly five, between five, five, three, so he's probably about five feet tall because he's only 15, probably not fully grown yet, right? Kid comes along. He sees this guy, takes one look at him and says, I'll take him. I'll I'll, I'll go fight him. And you can start to kind of imagine why Saul in this text at first, he's like, dude, no way. Like, I'll kind of ad lib it a little bit. He's probably thinking, dude, this kid is crazy. This kid is like off his rocker. What is it? Where's your daddy at, man? Come on. Where are your parents at? This is crazy, man. Somebody needs to take this guy back home or something. I mean, he's, this is, to him, this is absolutely ridiculous. And I want, to, I want to show you something. I got a little bit of a visual illustration here that I want to show you. Um, just so you can get a picture of roughly how big these guys were, the difference in the height, okay? This right here um, is David. So roughly five feet tall, okay? So this represents David. Actually, um, would you mind coming up here, man? Awesome, thank you. So, um, are you going to hold that? Uh, thank you so much. So, this is our David right here. Thank you, sir. Awesome. All right. That's David. This, whoa, that's huge. This is Goliath. Good night. Uh, yeah. I'd come up to this dude's belly button, maybe. And I'm like a whole head taller than what David was. This is the difference between Goliath. And David, and I love that this thing's bigger too, like this little twerp, you know, coming up here trying to fight this guy. This is crazy. So that's about the height difference, just so you can have an idea of the difference here. Um, He wouldn't even come up to his belly button at all, like not even close. I mean, this is crazy. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. So that's kind of just a visual illustration of how tall he was. So I want to give you one more quick visual illustration here to just kind of, so you can get a picture of roughly how tall he was. This is an exact but it's actually fairly close, to be honest with you. There's somebody that I know really, really well that um, compared to my height, it's actually yeah, kind of close. Uh, again, not exact. So I'm going to get my David to come on up here. Come on, buddy. Come here, big guy. All right. So here's kind of my David. What's up, buddy? Yeah, he wants to talk too. All right, so this is kind of my David. Again, not exact, but fairly close. So what we're going to do, we're going to simulate what this fight. Well, I'm, just kidding. I'm completely kidding. We're not going to do that. But, um, but yeah, and, and this is, yeah, it's a, it's a stick. It's a pole, buddy. Yeah. You probably don't want that one. Look, I bet mommy's got a passy. There you go, yeah. There's the magic word. So, and that seems ridiculous. You're probably thinking to yourself, dude, there's no, that's, that's just too much. But you can imagine, you can imagine with that kind of picture how Saul was, what Saul was thinking in this moment and how he was feeling. He's probably like, dude. What in the world are you talking about? 
Are you crazy? You're just a kid. You are tiny. You've got no military experience. You're not even old enough to be in the army, roughly 15 years old. You're not even supposed to be here, kid. What are you talking about? And David's not a full-grown man. He's not this huge, you know, warrior of a man yet. Goliath is just towering over him. So that's what's going on in this scene. Let's check out David's response to Saul when Saul's essentially saying, dude, there's no way. You're way too young. This is crazy. No way can you go out and fight him. This is uh, uh, verse 34 through 37, first part. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So, amen, I love that. You hear David's telling him, Look, I've got, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not in the army. I don't have this military experience like you do, but I, I've been a shepherd. Okay, he's telling him, look, I've got experience being a shepherd. At this point in time, David had years of experience being a shepherd. Now, being a shepherd, a very monotonous job the majority of the time. Very, very monotonous. But then a lot of times, sometimes it could also be a very dangerous job. And for David specifically, obviously, he's telling us here, there were tons of times it was actually a very dangerous job. See, what was happening is David had never been in the army. He had never gotten that training, you know, from, from, you know, the Israeli army but he had gotten his own training from God. God straight up put him in positions where he had to learn how to fight. And it may not have been against a, Goli- or a giant like Goliath, but it was against lions and bears. And there were several occasions, not just one or two, several occasions where David had to go up against lions and bears. David had straight up risked his own life on numerous occasions just to save one one sheep. And what does this remind us of? What is the picture that we see here? Maybe the, the greater shepherd, Jesus Christ, who not only risked his life, but he literally gave his life for us so that anyone that calls on his name, believes in him, follows after him, will be saved. Will be saved. This is a picture of Jesus in this moment. David's faith, guys, it wasn't in himself. He wasn't brave. He wasn't courageous because he trusted in his own strength. Do not um, you know, get that confused in your head. And a lot of times people, even Christians, a lot of, really the secular world, but even Christians, a lot of times will spin this. Like as long as you believe in yourself enough, as long as you are brave enough, courageous enough. Dude, David wasn't stupid. He knew he couldn't take this guy on. There was no way. He saw the same guy that all these other guys did. And don't think for a second that he was perfect, that he didn't have any kind of struggles or temptations with fear, doubt, or whatever else. He was a fallible man just like everyone else. But here's the thing. David's faith was in God. David knew that even though Goliath was big, God is bigger. God is bigger than any giants we will face. From the world's perspective, David was a dead man walking. That's the world's perspective. Dead man walking right there. Ain't no way that guy's going to survive. But from God's perspective, giant, or a giant, Goliath was a dead man. From God's perspective. David saw Goliath from God's perspective. And in his eyes, the battle had already been won. In David's eyes, he already saw the victory. 
because he knew God was on his side. How could David see this situation, this giant, from God's perspective when everyone else, the entire nation of Israel, this entire army, saw it differently? How could David do this? Because David, because while everybody else's eyes, the entire world's eyes, this nation, this army's eyes were on Goliath, and they couldn't take their eyes off of the giant, off of Goliath, David's eyes were on God. David's eyes were on the God of the universe. While everybody else was staring at Goliath, he was staring at God. And next in this text, we see Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the wadi, and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. See, here's the thing that we have to see through this, guys, is David found his identity in God. He ultimately, he wasn't trying to please Saul in this moment. He wanted to please God. That's who he wanted to please. He didn't allow Saul to conform him into his image, which is what he was trying to do. He wanted his life, his situations, his circumstances to be dictated by God and no one else. David was not fighting this battle so much for Saul. David was fighting this battle for God. And what this this text kind of points us to is the fact that, man, every single one of us is made uniquely. There is no one else exactly like you. You are unique. And guess what? That is intentional. That is not a mistake. You are not an accident. Every single one of us is different. You have different skills, different gifts, different experiences in life that God wants to use. He wants to use those things, man. Don't try to be somebody else. Be yourself. Be the person that God is making you and molding you to be. Not the person that God is making molding someone else to be. If you want to imitate somebody, imitate the things of Christ in them, but ultimately be the person that God is making and molding you to be. And I'm going to tell you something. When you claim your identity in Christ, when you use the gifts, the skills, and the talents, and the experience that God has given you, you are going to see God move in your life and through your life in ways that you will not be able to believe, that you couldn't imagine. Why? That's when you're operating out of God's strength and out of God's power and not your own. And that's exactly what David was doing. The last text here, it says, the Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield there in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give your corpses, the corpses of the Philistine camp, to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. I love this. Then all the earth will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by the sword or by the spear that, the gods, but that God saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. 
David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley. The gates of Ekron, Philistine bodies, were strewn all along the Sherem road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head, brought it to Jerusalem. He put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. I love this, man. I love this story. And there's so many things that we can just dive into here. But one of the things I want us to check out is right off the bat, when when David is starting to approach Goliath, there's two things that we see him doing. Two main things that we see Goliath doing as David's approaching him. The first thing that Goliath does is he curses David by his gods. That's what the text tells us, curses him by his gods. What this tells us is this wasn't so much a fight between two men between a a giant and a boy. This wasn't even so much of a fight between two nations, two armies, um, Israel and the Philistines. This was a fight between the gods, the fake false idols, false gods of the Philistines, and the one true God of the universe. That's what this fight was ultimately about. That's ultimately who was in this fight and fighting this battle. The second thing that we see Goliath do right off the bat, right after he curses David, um, you know, uh, to his gods, he, he starts trash-talking him. He just starts straight up just trash-talking this guy, talking down to him and just saying these lies. And what he's doing, the reason that he's doing this is he's trying to get in David's head. He's trying to um, speak these lies to him and basically trying to cripple him with fear mentally because he knows that if he can get into his head and cripple him mentally, then guess what? The battle is already over before it ever starts because if he cripples him with fear, he's paralyzed with fear. David won't be able to do anything. Goliath just comes up there and that's it. One swipe, he's done because he's already defeated him up here. Does this remind you of anybody else? The devil, Satan. That's exactly what Satan tries to do to us, guys. He tries to get into our head. He tries to um, you know, spread these lies to us tries to deceive us because he knows that if he can get into our head, this is where the real battle is. If he can get into our head, then he has defeated us before any kind of a real battle ever actually takes place. That's exactly what Goliath was trying to do to David here. But I love what David does, man. David models. He gives us this incredible picture of what all of us as Christians are called to do. Whenever Satan tries to attack us, he does it to all of us. He does it to me all the time. You are not alone in that. He attacks us. Jesus was not above being tempted. Do not think that you are. He attacks us in our mind, okay? And and that's exactly what he does. But I love what David does in this instant. He won't have it, man. He, He doesn't even hesitate in this moment. As soon as Goliath starts taunting him, spreading this lies, David floods out Goliath's lies with God's He floods out Goliath's lies with God's truth. That's exactly what Jesus did in the wilderness whenever Satan was tempting him. That's exactly what David does in this moment. He comes right back at him. He doesn't even hesitate. He's listening to these lies, and he gives it right back to him, and he floods out the lies with God's truth. See, Goliath in this moment is essentially telling David that, you know, how big he is and that David doesn't stand a chance. But David comes right back at him and he says, he tells Goliath how big his God is and that he doesn't stand a chance. That's essentially what he's doing in this moment. And he was exactly right. David was exactly right. This fight was over 
almost as soon as it started. Goliath didn't even last the first round, man. He only lasted a few seconds, and he was out cold. TKO, total knockout, if not possibly even dead on the spot. And then what does David do? This kid goes over to this big old giant, pulls out this giant's own sword, kills him with his own sword, delivers the final blow. Why did he do that? Why did he kill? Well, for one, he had to kill him so the fight would be over. But he also delivers his final blow, cuts off his head, because he wants everyone to know, do not make a mistake. Do not think that Goliath won this fight. He wanted everyone to know without a doubt who exactly won this fight so that everyone say that God won this, so that David won this. And this fight, this battle, this final blow points us to another battle. It points us to another final blow with Jesus Christ on the cross. Only that final blow wasn't being delivered to Jesus. That final blow was being delivered by Jesus to Satan on the cross. See, we have our own giants. We had our giants that we were, they were, we were trapping us up against the wall. They were cornering us. There was no escape for us. There was no way for us to get out. They had us trapped, consuming us, right? And then you go back to Genesis chapter 3. What happened when sin first entered the world? God promised that he would send an offspring, a champion that would one day come defeat Satan, deliver this final blow by crushing Satan's head. Then Jesus comes down. He puts on that cross that was meant for you and for me, our sin as well on his back marches up Calvary, dies in our place for our sin. And when he does that, he delivers the final blow. He crushes Satan's head. And he defeats Satan and sin of any control, any power it had over our life. You guys, listen to me. When you are in Christ, your Goliath has already fallen and you are already victorious. When you are in Christ, your Goliath is already fallen, and you are victorious already. See, a lot of times we make the mistake, when people read this story, they make the mistake of assuming that David represents us. I mean, the world will talk about this, you know, secular world will talk about, yeah, you, you, you do enough, you know, you try hard enough, you're courageous enough, do enough good things, then you can take down your giants. Even the underdog can come back and take down their giants. And not just in the secular world, but again, a lot of Christians will try to spin this like that. But I'm going to tell you something. There is absolutely nothing that we could ever do. You can never take down your giants on your own. David never represented us, ever. That is not what this story is saying. David represents the only one that can truly take down the giants, which is Jesus Christ. That's who David represents in this story. You want to know who represents us in this story? The Israelite army that was scared to death. They were paralyzed in fear, crippled in fear. They wouldn't even move after 40 days, day and night being taunted by this guy because they didn't want to go out and fight him and get killed. And here's the thing. Guess what? Don't miss this. They were right. They were right. There is no way at all, ever, that they could have fought and defeated, killed Goliath on their own. They would have lost. They were exactly was not their fight this was God's guys we will never get to the point where we see the giants in our life fall until we first start to surrender submit to the fact that we are completely incapable of making them fall on our own we are completely incapable of taking our giants in our life down on our own we have to surrender to the only one that can truly take these giants down 
and that is God. That is Jesus Christ. This was never David's fight, and your giants that you face, that has never been your fight. It has always been, and it will always be God's fight. Jesus Christ's But here's the thing, how do we start this process of beginning to see our giants, the giants in this life that we face from God's perspective? How do we begin the process of living our lives from a posture of courage and victory rather than from a posture of fear and defeat? Practically speaking, how do we do this? How do we put on this mindset seen from a God's eye view, from God's perspective, like David did in this situation? The last thing I want to do is hit on three practical ways that we, begin, we can begin to do this, to see the giants of our life from God's perspective. The first one is to call on the name of Jesus. Guys, again, we have no power at all, no power, no authority whatsoever to bring the giants in our life down. But I'm going to tell you somebody that does, Jesus Christ. At the name of Jesus, the giants must fall. They have no choice. They have no power over Jesus Christ. Our giants only have as much power as we give them. When we try to fight them on our own strength, we give them power. When we try to pretend like they don't exist, we give them power. When we use any other name other than the name of Jesus, we give them power. But when we submit to the power of Jesus Christ, they have absolutely no power over our life at all. That's number one, call on the name of Jesus. Number two, tell God how big your giant is. Tell God how big your giant is. Man, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, God the Father ripped the veil from top to bottom, meaning you have access to the throne room of God. You have access 24-7 to the throne room of God. He loves you. Call out to him. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. He knows more about what's going on than you do. But he's a loving father. He wants us to give these things, to take these things to him. And what we're doing in those moments is not only we're spending time with him, but we're saying, Daddy, I can't do this on my own. I need help with this. I'm submitting to you that I'm struggling with this. This is a giant in my life, whatever this may be. I'm giving it to you in faith. Please help me. That's what we're doing in those situations, whether it's a financial issue, whether it's a relationship issue, something going on in your marriage or another relationship like you with your kids or a friend. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe you just lost your job and you have no clue what to do. Anger, bitterness, anxiety, resentment. Here's something else, unforgiveness or even unrepentance. There are several of us in this room, let's be honest with ourselves, that there are areas in our life that we are completely unrepentant of. We are holding on to those things and they're creating these giants in our life. I'm gonna tell you something. You don't have to leave here today clinging to that giant. You can surrender it over to him. Tell him what it is, how big it is. Surrender it over to him. And I'm gonna tell you something. He's gonna give you that peace that passes all understanding. He will comfort you. He will surround you with his people that will lift you up, that will encourage you and give you accountability. Tell God how big your giant is. That's number two. Number three, the last thing. Tell your giant how big your God is. Tell your giant how big your God is. When the giants in this life start trash-talking you, you give it right back to them in the name of Jesus. Man, you have the God of the universe as a Christian. You have the God of the universe living inside of you, the Holy Spirit. And you have been given power and authority in the name of Jesus to call out your giants in his name. Call them out in the name of Jesus, man. Get familiar with the promises of God, with God's truths that he has over your life and claim those truths in the face of your giants. 
Get familiar with those things. The promises, the truths that God has for you specifically. It's in that book called the Bible. Break it open. Read it, man. Get familiar with them. That's what Jesus did. He called out God's truth in the face of Satan, Jesus Christ. It's this incredible picture of what to do. Remind yourself daily. Remind yourself how powerful he is. How incredible he is. This is the God of the universe. He made everything in the universe and everything and he completely sustains everything in the universe and everything. Remind yourself of this. If you look in the world around you, you see um, you know, people, you see animals, you see the stars, you see whatever it may be. Constantly remind yourself how powerful our God is. Not only that, but how much he loves you. An incredible illustration of, of the love of God and the fact that God will never stop loving us no matter what we do, no matter what this world throws at us. It's found in Romans chapter 8. If you are struggling with that today, then I want to encourage you. Read Romans chapter 8. You have to read it several times a day. Do that every day for a month and then see how your perspective changes on the love of God, the love that God has for Hey guys, first off, I just want to say thank you for joining us today for the sermon. And uh, whether you're somebody that's come to our church or you're somebody that lives locally, you go to another church, maybe you don't even live here. Um, I just want I just want to say first and foremost, thank you for joining us. And uh, I, I want to encourage you to, to respond in some way today because, you know, when we hear a sermon, when we read the Bible, when we, um, whatever it may, may be, the point of that is, Um, for God to speak to us in some way, shape, or form. And so if you are a Christian, um, you've been a seasoned Christian, you know the Lord already, then the way that we can respond is just by, you know, asking Him, God, what do you want me to do with the convictions that you're giving me uh, based on this sermon, the way that you're speaking to me? What do you want me to do? And then respond to that. Maybe it's an area of your life that you've been holding on to um, and, and you haven't been giving it to Him. And I want to encourage you to give that to Him and step out in faith. Or maybe if it's, um, you know, some unbelief that you've had and and God has really convicted you of some things. Um, You know, whatever it may be for you, it's different for everyone. I want to encourage you to respond to God and and step in His direction. And and the other thing too is if, if you are somebody that maybe you've listened to this and you've never responded to that gospel message, you've never been, been impacted by that gospel message, but now something is happening, God is kind of stirring in your heart and in your mind a little bit, then I want to encourage you to step out in faith, respond to that gospel message. And throughout the book of Acts, um, Acts tells us our history as a church. Uh, it shows us that you know, what that response looks like. So number one is to repent. And this word repent, all that means is just to turn from, you know, our sinful ways, our sinful desires, you know, turn from making ourself God and all these other things in life, God, and turn to God and just give Him our life. Um, and, and then on top of that response, after the repentance, it comes something else. And it's called baptism. And baptism is so key, it's so important. It's seen all throughout um, that book and Acts and and the importance and significance of it. Um, It's the symbol of death to the old self and then um, birth to uh, this new life in Christ. And we're, 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 uh, we die with Christ to the old self and we are raised with Christ to, to walk in this new life. 
and it's a command from Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if you have made that commitment to Christ, if you have stepped out um, and you are wanting to follow Christ, then I want to encourage you to take that next step and be baptized somewhere. Whether it's if you have a local church that you want to go be baptized at, I encourage you to do that. Um, if you don't have a church, we would love to be able to celebrate that with you um, here. But I encourage you first and foremost to do that, to, to talk with someone, um, to get counsel on what this means, to seek discipleship as well. So. Um, I encourage you to do those things. We would love to talk with you. We are praying for you. I want you to know that you are loved and you are prayed for. So if you're ready to take that next step in your relationship with Christ, um, and if you want to take that next step with us, then we, are, we, we would welcome you with open arms. And so there's some links that we're going to provide below for you. Uh, please check that out. Um, and again, if you, if you have any prayer requests, um, please contact us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. And we're excited about taking this next step with you.